following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 110, The Disappearing CFI and Why We Do Stall Training, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome back to the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm joined here with some of my favorite aviation geek friends. Uh, first of all, Rick Felty, welcome. Hello. Hello. Larry Overstreet, welcome. Greetings from Milwaukee. And Tom Frick, welcome. Hello. And Victoria Zyko, yep, welcome. Yep, yep. Yeah, and we also will have uh, Russ Roslowski joining us a little bit later on in the podcast. Well, this evening we have a lot of really interesting things to talk about, and uh, we also have some great feedback from you, the listener. Let's do the pre-flight. Before we get started, though, a, a quick announcement. Uh, we had a little issue with the iTunes feed, and I just want to make sure that you know that you can listen to this not just in iTunes, but in many different types of podcatchers. I think, uh, Rick Felty, you listen to this. In, uh, on a... I use uh, Overcast, which is a really great iOS app if uh, you want to try out a different podcatcher. And also, I listen to it right off the website. You can just hit the play on the play button, and uh, you can also listen to it on uh, any other type of device, a Windows type of de- device. And uh, I think, Tom, you listen to that on your iPhone or on your phone also, whatever you have. Whatever I have, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's uh, what is it you have, by the way? I use an Android phone, and Android. and it works just fine there. And I pull it right off of the uh, the Stuck Mike Avcast website. Okay, cool. So there are all these other methods to get this uh, podcast, and we really appreciate you listening to us. Uh, what you should do, I think, is go to Facebook and make sure you like us, and also Twitter and follow us. And we will actually post when the podcast goes out. So just a little technical glitch there, and I think it was an iTunes issue, so we'll have that resolved, hopefully, in this episode. But moving on along to our announcements for this week, we have uh, one big announcement, and that's uh, an air show that we really love, and it's near and dear to our heart, and that's the, uh, it's called now the Affordable Aircraft Expo used to be called the Sebring U.S. Sport Aviation Expo, but it really is about affordable aircraft. And that's going to be January 20th through the 23rd. Uh, that's coming up next month. And we, I'm hoping to be down there uh, with the Stuck Mike Avcast, also with Sun and Fun Radio. Uh, if some, many of you know that Sun and Fun Radio is actually having a station there and doing some of the live feeds and uh, some of the recorded uh, interviews and placing it on their website there. So it's called Chats from the Deck and also Sun and Fun Radio. But all the different podcasters will be there and we'll also hopefully be there recording. I know I'm going to try to be there. I don't know what my schedule is for January, but I'm definitely going to try to make it down there. And uh, are any of our other fellow podcasters going to be there? Uh, Larry, are you going? I am not going to be able to be there this year. Oh, bummer. Bummer, bummer, bummer. And Tom, I, you said you might go to the 
Sport Aviation Expo. Yeah, I might. Um, I'm trying to see if I can get some time off of my calendar. Um, as it as it stands right now, I'm not sure, but uh, if I can, I will try to get down there. I would definitely love to cool. uh, be a part of that. Cool. And I know Victoria, you guys have had a booth at the expo. I think in the past. I don't know if you you folks will be down there this year. Yeah, we've been there um, for ten years straight. Wow. So, um, Chris. Greg and Joe will all be there. I'm I'm staying back to man the fort. Chris, Greg, and Joe and a flat Victoria will have there and see my picture next. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, but I tell you that is that is one of my favorite uh, shows. Obviously, you know I love Sun and Fun, but it really to me is the grassroots of aviation. It's where you know it's where aviation starts in small aircraft, affordable aircraft. It's where, you know, the rest of the world goes out and plays in these really wonderful devices that take us through the air and allow us to actually see the world from a different perspective. So I really highly recommend you looking at uh, Sebring, and we'll have the link to the website. It's actually sportaviationexpo.com, sportaviationexpo.com, January 20th through the 23rd. It's everything from... It started with light sport, but it's everything from like light sport, home built, uh, actually refurbishing uh, production aircraft, and ultralights. So it's truly discussing flying and flying affordably. So check it out. Uh, I think my friend is actually going to bring his uh, 170. I think he's got a 170 restored that he's going to bring to that show. Now entering cruise flight. Well, moving on into our topics this evening, uh, we have some pretty interesting topics. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to discuss and and I think is really uh, important to you and to all of us that are continuing our training. For instance, I try to get some recurrent training and sometimes I have a difficulty finding a CFI. The topic I want to discuss this tonight is that, is that issue. The, and I call it the disappearing CFI. You know, we had this happen before and, and really, you know, how is it that all this this hiring at the airlines is affecting us and and our instruction and our ability to find a flight instructor. So depending on where you are in your training, it's going to affect you differently. For instance, for me, uh, I want to try to find an instructor that can do, say, a flight review with me in an aircraft or an aircraft checkout. Even with that, it can sometimes be difficult, especially if somebody that you were going to go use for your checkout has suddenly been hired by an airline. What happens uh, and we're finding is happening lately is that these uh, these instructors are being hired and they're told by these airlines that they need to get there within two weeks of, of their accepting a job. So you may have booked a flight review two, three weeks out and all of a sudden get there and realize, well, it's no, it's not Joe, it's Joanne that's doing your flight review now. So that's been happening quite a bit. So what what I want to talk is about is you know how is it affecting your training and and what are things that we can do to actually help us move forward in our training and not rely on that specific instructor. Um, but there's you know a couple of us are you know active CFIs and are at the out airport quite a bit. So I kind of want to get a little bit of feedback from from Tom about and, and Larry too who's out at the airport. And what is it, first of all, Tom, what are you seeing as far as turnover rates? Are you, are you seeing that happen at your flight school? Um, yeah. As, as a matter of fact, um, you know, I, I was uh, uh, blessed to receive uh, several students from a, from a CFI who had uh, taken a job with a, with a regional airline. Um, he went and decided to move on. He had gotten his time in. 
and uh, was given an offer and took it. So uh, he had, I don't know, four students that um, he turned over to me that I'm, I'm continuing with, what, with now. Um, one of them already has finished out. He got his uh, private pilot license, so we had a new pilot there in the last Congrats. week. Yep. And then, um, yeah, and, and, and I've seen it at other schools as well. And I've, and I've heard it from students coming in as well, um, that they'll be at a flight school and they're frustrated with it. They actually uh, have been at flight schools and, uh, you know, training with one person for a period of time and all of a sudden he's gone. Then they've got somebody else and then he's gone. And, and it, it becomes uh, um, frustrating for them to have to start over because they uh, looked high and far for somebody that they could uh, trust and somebody that they were comfortable with learning from. And then all of a sudden, poof, they're gone. And they, they feel like I've got to start all over again. And, and I had similar experiences when I was getting my private as well. I went through three different CFIs before I finally finished out. Well, sometimes that's, it, it turns out to be a good thing in that you get some different perspective from other instructors. And also, it works in certain schools, in schools that follow, say, a syllabus. Um, I know that in my experience, I've always tried to follow a syllabus because I usually have to use a team of instructors. I always have someone else do the stage checks, etc. But if I was to, say, get sick, I know that my student will be taken care of because we follow this syllabus, whatever it is. At the time, I was using Jeppesen. You can use whatever whatever it is you have. Um, and, and Tom, I think you commented on this before, but just to remind us, do you, do you folks do that? Do you have a, like a set syllabus that you use at your school? Indeed, and, and and we're a part one forty one school as well, so that that um is a, it makes it very structured. You know that the part one forty one is is definitely syllabus based, and it's a distinct line that you're following to get to uh, to get to your private and your instrument and commercial. So the part one of forty one, uh, you don't have to use that, but you can use all the tools. You can use the syllabus that you're that you're using. You can use those stage checks. And I think that's a great idea. Uh, I'd say ninety percent of my students would be, would not be part 141, but would use that syllabus, and it really helped them move along. And I'm sure you're finding that also, Tom, uh, like you said, and it really, it, it, it makes it cohesive. So if you were to, say, leave tomorrow, you know where your students are, and they know what to do next. And I think that's great. Indeed. And, and that's exactly, you're right. Um, not everybody that comes in wants to do their uh, training part 141. They want to do it part 61, but we have those resources and we use them. Um, our chief flight instructor uh, is very adamant about us um, recording and documenting, even with the part 61 students, you know, where they are so that any instructor can come in at any time and, and pick up and, and give a student a flight lesson without a question of where they're at. That's awesome. And I know, Larry, you, you're primarily in a 61 environment. Uh, have you felt any any results from this, from this hiring that's going on right now at the airlines? Um, a, a little bit. Um, I had an instructor uh, who did my Diamond uh, DA-40 checkout a couple of years ago, and she was a terrific instructor. I learned a lot from her. And then she went on to other opportunities and is now flying with the carrier. Um, and, uh, you know, for recurrent instrument training or things like that, I would love to have the opportunity to go fly with her again. Um, but what I've tried to do is keep... Um, several different instructors, even at different airports with different aircraft, um, it, as as kind of friends, if you will, you know, people that I go see, people that I fly with, so that if any of them aren't able to um, uh, take care of me in a, at a point when I need to, uh, you know, have a flight review or whatever, that there are other flight instructors out there who know me, that have flown with me, that you know, can kind of work me into their schedule versus just a stranger calling, uh, you know, and, and uh, needing a flight review or something like that. 
I, I'm assuming, Larry, in your experience, that this is actually an exciting time for those instructors. Oh yeah, it is. It is for them. Um, it it can be a little bit nerve wracking for us, you know, if we're trying to uh, get an instructor who's, uh, for example, I, I had been using a particular instructor at an airport that I fly at who's checked out in a in a Redbird sim, and um, uh, that person went on to another opportunity, and uh, now there's nobody who's checked out in the sim that I've flown with before. So um, I'll have to uh, do a little bit of. Uh, digging around to figure out who I can uh, fly with, uh, you know, in the sim. Um, so depending on what you're trying to do, uh, the aircraft that you're checked out in, the aircraft that you want to have a flight review in or whatever, um, it's just nice to have several people that you can call on. So um, knowing that the airline is sort of, you know, pulling people through the system on up to, uh, you know, uh, new opportunities for them, which is exciting for them, um, it, it's nice to have, you know, different folks that you can rely on. So there are times when this can become a really good experience. And I think, you know, Victoria, you, you have mentioned in the past that you had a good experience. You know, kind of refresh us about that. And why was it good for you? You know, at first it wasn't a good experience. I, I have lost um, several CFIs to the airlines. And it was when I was training for my private pilot. And it took a very, very long time. I didn't solo for a very long time. Um, I think it was a combination of we just weren't a good match. And then also, I don't know if the CFI was entirely interested in my progress because um, I felt like he might have been just trying to get the hours and go with it. So when I wasn't progressing, I don't think it was a big deal that was caught right away. And I didn't, I definitely didn't know better at the time. Um, but as soon as I got a new CFI, you know, I realized, oh, you know, I'm progressing a lot more now. And I soloed and got my private pilot within, you know, two months time. So I would always recommend if you don't feel like you're where you should be, or if you just want to brush up something that you're not getting, sometimes switching CFIs is a good idea, even if it's just for one flight, because everyone has something different to teach you and you can learn something different from every CFI you encounter. So this worked out to, to, to your advantage. I mean, it really did. I mean, you, you had some a situation where you want, kind of wanted to get rid of the CFI, and you did. And, uh, but that was because, you know, they weren't really into the instructing, so they moved on to the airlines. Uh, and that's unfortunate that that, ha- that happens sometimes. Uh, and it's happening more so now because the airlines are, are hiring so quickly right now. Um, so it can actually turn out to be good. But now in your case, Victoria, did you have like a syllabus that you were working off of? And was the transition, was it a seamless transition or was it rough? It was actually pretty seamless, except for the fact that I, with the previous instructor, I was signed off to solo. And then when I got the new instructor, he had never flown with me before. So he wanted to make sure I was okay to solo. And at the school, um, before each solo sign-off, you have to fly with the chief instructor. So I had to do that pre-solo flight twice and get used to a new CFI twice before that could actually happen. Yeah, and in some cases, like mine, I, I didn't have to, I didn't just change instructors. I changed airports multiple times. So that was, that was my own fault. That had nothing to do with the airlines hiring at the time. As a matter of fact, they weren't hiring when I, I started getting my ratings. Um, but you know, there's some of us have gone through quite a few instructors in the beginning, and uh, I think it, it can have a negative impact depending on how you look at it and how you prepare. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but I think, Rick, you, you actually went through yeah. a few instructors. 
Yeah, early on I did. And I think as I hear the discussion, I, and I'm now sort of trying to remember the how it felt and whatever. At the time, it was so early on um, that, and, there, and we were not working off a syllabus, that it, that it was it was sort of okay in that I I felt later like I got a lot of different, you know, looks at experience with different people. And I really hadn't settled on one. There was there was one regular guy who kind of ran the school who, who I liked flying with. But everything was so new that every time I went up, I learned something new anyway. So it wasn't, um, it didn't seem, it didn't feel like a problem. And, and what was good is that as I got deeper into my training, uh, it got concentrated to, to just a couple of people who I flew with regularly enough. And by the end, one person to steadily push me to the check ride, that that rhythm worked out okay. But I could see that being a problem in those kind of situations where different people had to sign off on you, had to know where you're at, left in the middle and you had to start again. I, I didn't have the bad experience. I, I got a lot of a lot of different looks early on. Um, you know, some I liked better than others, but I invariably learned something every time. So it felt okay for me, but that's because it happened you know, during the very beginning flights where, you know, you're just soaking everything up. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. You know, uh, in, and in this discussion, one of the things that I think is important, and I'd like to hear other people chime in, is uh, how, how would you, what would we suggest you do as a listener to prepare for this, prepare, prepare for this uh, pilot shortage that's going on right now, or the, the hiring boom, if we want to call it that, the, I think one of the important things to do is when you do look for a flight school is ask them, hey, you know, how am I going to progress through this training? Uh, you know, can you show me the materials that you use? Is there a syllabus? And and the, a really good question to ask is, mm-hmm. you know, can you know what do you need to do? You know, what what do I, you know, what do I need to do if I lose my instructor? You know, how do I move forward? So, uh, so I'd like to hear from, from some of the other folks here, you know, make sure, you know, those are my, my suggestions are number one, ask for a tour and also ask for a syllabus and what they do, uh, and also ask them how you would progress. But, uh, first Tom, I think you had a suggestion. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things that I did when I was, um, transitioning through from CFIs is how proactive I was about my own training, about my own, um, uh, you know, learning as much as I possibly could, just keeping my nose in the books and just constantly, um, you know, being the consummate ag- av geek, if you will, you know, just trying to just soak in as much as I could so that I could be prepared and have a eh, a semi-intelligent conversation with the next CFI as, as I'm going up and flying. And that seemed to make the transition um, a, a lot easier. Um, I also have, um, you know, I got Microsoft Flight Sim 10 at home and I've got a little yoke on the on the desktop there that 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 helped a lot too that helped me keep my um my head in the game if you will and and that was really really instrumental in in the changes that i made from cfi to cfi it's just you know doing the homework and uh keeping myself in it so being very proactive in your own training and and taking charge of your training is basically what you're doing there and i think that's that's a real great idea uh and using the simulator at home i i think that's terrific it really does keep you in the game and it's a great, great training device. Victoria, you, you said you had an, an idea also. Yeah, something that really helped me out. So when I went to complete my commercial rating, I actually was living in Maryland and went back up to Michigan to finish it. And I had seven days to um, freshen up and uh, take my check ride. And when I went back up there, I called to my flight school and I, I had a discussion with the CFI and I said, I need someone who's going to be for me there for me all day, every day. And I made sure there was a commitment and that they understood what I was trying 
to obtain. So if the if you have a good discussion with your CFI and what your end goal is and how often you'd like to fly and how much you need to fly to reach your goal, uh, that can be ben- very beneficial. And I didn't know to do that at my private pilot because I never knew how long it would take me. But for, for my commercial, when I had a set amount of time, I made sure there was someone there for me all day, every day uh, to knock it out. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of what the school should be doing. They should be sitting down with you and saying, hey, listen, you know, what type of schedule do you have? Are you here, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that type of thing? And I think that's really important for for the school to do that. But I think it's great that you actually took the initiative to, to actually say to them, hey, this is what I want to do, and this is how I want to do this. And uh, and I, I think that's great. I mean, and, and things change, too, in your training environment and in your personal life. I mean, we've all had interruptions, and, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to understand that and how to move forward. So great stuff, though. Thanks. And thanks a lot for that, Victoria. And I think that and, and Tom and everybody else and as far as what we can do. So uh, I think it, it's something that is in my life has has changed my attitude towards flight training. You know, maybe we should go to a generalized syllabus and, and be able to bring this from point to point. And, uh, and then... You know, then really, when we go forward, it's it's something that <laughs> makes it much easier to make the transition to anything. Well, that was great. Good discussion. Um, the other thing that we want to talk about, and actually joining us to help us discuss this, is Russ Rizlowski. Russ, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Had a little bit of technical difficulties there, but hopefully I got them resolved now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you joined us because we're going to talk a little bit about a topic that, that I think you can help quite a bit as an instructor uh, with some feedback. Um, you know, one of the things that came up in our discussions in the past, and it's been a real uh, large discussion, especially with all the airline accidents we've seen lately, is, uh, you know, stall training, recognition, and also recovery training and why do we need that because uh, that question has come about in the past and we've gone from well you really don't need much of it just don't stall the plane you know and uh, you won't lose control of the aircraft if you don't stall it now we're going in the other direction where we want to do more stalls and we want to recognize those stalls and also the recovery procedures uh, but most importantly uh, we need to add those the stall training back to our syllabus and, and have a discussion a very frank discussion about stalls and and doing stall training. So this might get a little bit uncomfortable from some of those here that are CFIs. So if you don't want to share, you don't have to. But uh, I'll I'll share some things first about stall recovery. I think we do need uh, more stall recovery training and actual stall recognition training, and we need to do it on a consistent basis to the point where uh, the stalls or exceeding you know the critical angle of attack. Uh, becomes a a normal regime of flight for us um, to do this. And if you're an instructor uh, and and you're listening right now, or you've talked to your instructor about this, the instructor themselves may not be very comfortable doing stalls. I know that if you say that in front of an FAA, they'll they'll be like, "Oh my gosh, how could that be?" But it's true, uh, and. And they really should always be on guard while they're flying with you, especially while they're doing stall training, because 
you know, if they get you into spin, you need some time to get out of that spin, etc. Also, they might wind up getting you into a stall where you don't want to be in a stall. So basically what I tell my instructors that have worked for me is that go up to altitude, go a little higher. If you feel uncomfortable, get up a little bit higher and do your stall training there. And there's a couple reasons uh, I do that. Number one, you don't have to take over from the student as quickly. Uh, so if they mess up, you give them an opportunity to fix it. Whereas if you're closer to the ground, you've got to recover uh, or else you might have an issue. And so that's that's really important. But but let's get back to the why. You know, why do we need stall recovery training? Because it can happen. <laughs> because a stall can happen just like anything else can happen. And it usually happens at an inopportune time. And, uh, and training yourself to recover from that stall, it should be second nature uh, for you to actually recover. When you get too slow or you see a buffet, a break, etc., you know what's, what you need to do next. And a lot of times, if we're getting too slow, we're getting close to the uh, you know critical angle of attack, and you know in an upright position, obviously not inverted. You just you know take a little bit of you know push the nose down just a little bit, and and you know <laughs> reduce that angle of attack. What I would like to hear, and I've heard this from instructors, and and don't be shy, is that you know from the experience of the other flight instructors here, you know Russ and Tom. Um, first of all, were you? And I'll start with Russ. Were you reticent to do stall training uh, in general? And also, were you reticent to do stall training with your students? No, I don't think so. I mean, I guess I accepted it was just a normal part of flight training as I was going through it. Um, certainly not with, with my students. They get, <laughs> they get probably more stalls than, than they want. But, but it's important because, as you kind of alluded to, this, the stalls are not going to happen when you're expecting them, right? I mean, they're, they're going to happen when you're not expecting them. And unfortunately, the training environment is very, very fake in, in this regard for the most part. Because what do we do? We, we go, okay, let's, uh, let's set up a power-off stall, a landing configuration stall. And the student goes through the, all the, you know, the setting the flaps and getting the gear down if appropriate. And um, then you know, reducing the power and just all this stuff. And they, they know the stall's coming. They know when it's going to come. They're watching the airspeed. And, you know, they're expecting it, right? And then what happens? Well, they stall, they recover, and there you go. But when the stall is going to really occur is on landing when they're not expecting it or in takeoff, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole thing we're training for. In fact, I had uh, a couple situations that happened really close to each other with two, two different students in two different airplanes. And this was over the course of just a few days. And we were practicing stalls. And I don't know if it you know, doesn't, but... But each of them, you know, I let them go a little bit. You know, the ball was a little bit off center. You know, they were more experienced students. I wanted them to see what happened. And sure enough, they stalled it. And in the stall, we got uh, just the very uh, first uh, phase of an incipient spin. There was no doubt. I mean, that, that went, the wing was way up there. And the, both students in both cases were a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit concerned. But we recovered. And then we did it again. And we recovered. And, and in both cases, the students said, wow, Russ, I am really glad that the first time that happened, I was with you because I don't know if I would have known what to do if it had happened just to me alone. And there's so much studying you can do, but being faced with a dramatic situation such as just an unexpected stall or even the stall spin, you have to practice it. There's no way, there's no way around it. And reading up on it is great and, and is important, but until you actually go out and experience it, you're not going to know how you're going to react. So in doing that, that incipient spin, 
not on purpose, obviously. It really helped those students, and you've obviously done a great job helping them along. But you know, what do you what do you feel about this as far as as training is concerned? Do you normally take your students up a little bit higher so you can allow them? to maybe mess up and, and get themselves into maybe an incipient spin? Uh, or do you recover uh, more often? Uh, I, we, I take them up to a, a suitable altitude where they've got plenty of room. Um, and you know, as time goes on, you know, and I am more and more hands-off, maybe we, maybe we go another 500 feet higher or so. But uh, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that fine line as an instructor of just – uh, knowing when to to take over and step in and maybe add you, you kind of subconsciously add that little bit of touch of rudder just just so it doesn't spin or not but it's just knowing how how far to let them go and I mean just like these two situations some of the best training opportunities are the completely unexpected unscripted and really in many cases unable to be scripted events right so uh, it's we go through like I said this whole the whole shenanigans is setting up this toss so the student knows it's coming. But uh, if there's a way to inadvertently stall it where, the, where you've distracted the student, maybe distracted them in slow flight or something so that they, they do inadvertently stall, that's a lot more realistic of a scenario. It's a little bit harder to set up, but if you can do it, it's, it's really valuable. Yeah, and even if you can get them to the point where they hear the stall horn, et cetera, I think that would be really cool just to see what their reaction is. And uh, I think that's always important that they, they react properly. In other words, they don't pull back, they push forward, that type of thing, yeah, uh, especially in level flight. The, and, and what's interesting is that I wonder if with your students, have they come up to you and said to you, hey, listen, um, you know, I'm kind of scared about the stall thing. Uh, can you take it slow? You know, that type of thing. Have, have you had those type of reactions? Sure. Uh, we've had where we just approach, okay, let's, let's do slow flight for a while and see how that works. And, and in most of the training airplanes, you can, you can get a very dramatic stall, right? right? Or you can get a very benign stall, depending on your configuration and how, how easy you're being about bringing that nose up. I mean, you bring, bring those up 20 degrees above the horizon, it's going to drop pretty far, but you can stall with the nose pretty much level and it's a little more benign. So once you work it up to maintaining that control in slow flight and then, uh, then just the edge of that stall recovering just, you know, just with a little bit of buffeting or a stall horn or so, and then you keep taking it on from there. I also like to do where, where you keep it in the stall so they can practice lifting that wing with the opposite rudder and uh, not you know, move the, the ailerons over, far, over to one side, and, and that can, of course, potentially get you into a, a spin pretty quickly. So it's just, it's just working them up gradually in some cases. And then there are some students who, <laughs> first flight, hey, I want to do a stall. Well, okay, we, we can do that. <laughs> I suppose it's not really in the syllabus yet, but all right. Yeah, so you do have to tailor it to the individual, but uh, you know, I found that if you just you, you you go up with them and you can actually do a stall, a very very non-dramatic stall, and uh, tell them. I usually don't use that term. I say we're going to exceed the critical angle of attack, and we're going to see what happens. Uh, I'll never use that term stall. And uh, when it happens, you know, they're like, "Oh, is that what a stall is?" Uh, so that, I always thought that was that was pretty interesting. So, and uh, Tom, how about you? I mean, what, what experience have you had with, with uh, doing stalls? Yeah, I was listening to conversation with you and Russ here, and I, I agree, my, my experience is pretty basically the same. You know, um, I just see stalls as a matter of fact. It was part of my training is coming through, and I've, I've never known anything different. It's just what we need to learn as a pilot, you know. 
Um, you know, the idea of doing it with students, I too, I try to, uh, you know, get some space between uh, the aircraft and the ground and get some altitude um, so that they can um, experience uh, stalling the aircraft and recovering it with plenty of room below us. Um, you know, and, and it's one of those things that as a uh, flight instructor, you know, I for a living fly with people who don't know how to fly. So um, I'm constantly on my toes and just, uh, you know, watching what's going on so that they can get the best experience they can and move forward with it. And um, I like the way Russ was describing how um, to ease people into it, if you will, um, where, where need be. Right, right. So, but you've seen there in like in anything, there's animosity towards, towards all these different uh, maneuvers that we do, especially stalls. And, uh, you know, that, that's quite interesting how we all deal with that. But the, the most important thing, I think, is to, to have the student trust you and, and know you're not going to do anything crazy. I know with me, my instructor was kind of getting mad that I wasn't pushing on the rudder properly, so he decided just to spin the aircraft. I was like, oh, you know, that scared the heck out of me. So I wasn't real thrilled about that. All right. You know, but... Uh, no, I'm, I'm not quite a teacher in that respect, you know. Uh, and and that, that really, I didn't like it too much, and it actually scared me. Uh, for a long time into doing stalls. I really didn't want to do the stalls because uh, I got into a spin and it was just so dramatic and so quick. I was like, oh my gosh. And it wasn't that big of getting out of it because I remember what to do from the book. But uh, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that to do that to your students and um, to, to jump on them like that. Maybe it worked. Maybe it, it stopped me from, from uh, using a proper rudder. But, uh, but Russ, you had another comment on that? Yeah, I wanted to add to that uh, the you know the power off stalls are of course the most benign or you know generally the the easiest to teach, but where I've have seen some a little bit of you know concern on the students is when you get into the power on stalls and you know yeah if you know a, a lower powered trainer you know doesn't get that nose high but some of the trainers you know we've, we've, I've taught stalls in one eighty twos and such and and uh, even the the one seventy two sps uh, that nose gets pretty high up there. Especially for a uh, for a new student who's just learning these these power on stalls, so definitely in those ones I, I tend to ease them into it. You know, maybe not using quite full power, but uh, you know, you know, get the RPM up. Yeah, start at two thousand RPM or something and work up from there. So uh, on on your comment of easing people into it, I th- I've seen that is really necessary sometimes with the uh, the power on stalls. In addition, sometimes the the students don't understand how much back pressure you have to apply to keep that nose up so or or amount of trim you need so they'll sit there hanging on the edge of a stall you know with that nose way up there but they're not quite stalling and it's just prolonging the agony i tell them so <laughs> you know just just get the nose up another two degrees and I, and I think it'll it'll stall just fine so uh so but yeah definitely easing them into the uh the more dramatic attitude of a power on stall right right you know, we've heard a lot from the instructors here in the group, but um, how about the, the folks that were on the other end uh, receiving the instruction, like, uh, for instance, Victoria? You know, what has your experience been? It's funny about the whole prolong the agony thing. <laughs> I do that. Um, partially, though, you know, every aircraft's a little different, so I'm glad you mentioned different airplanes. Cessna 172, it takes me forever to get that thing to stall. I think it's just because, I don't know, it's a heavier aircraft or the the strength in my arms, but I always end up having to have an instructor help me pull the oak all the way back and it'll be all the way in my chest and I'll barely get a buffet. Um, so some of these trainers are just built so well that they don't want to stall, at least for a little old me, I have a lot of difficulty. Um, the glass air, on the other hand, that's so light, you just have to 
think about moving the yoke and it'll move. And that's, um, you know, more high power aircraft can really sneak up on you in the stall. And, um, you know, you need to be very aware um, in aircraft like that. But what really helped me when I was afraid of stalling um, was because I was afraid of getting into an inadvertent spin. And it was always something I watched out for when I was turning base to final because I heard that was, you know, a very, very dangerous spot. And I actually went and took some spin lessons. And when I got up there, I found out spins weren't that scary. And at least for the aircraft I was in, pretty easy to recover from um, as long as, you know, you're you're high enough. So um, I would definitely suggest anyone who's afraid of stalling or afraid of spin, uh, spins to go take a lesson and see what it actually feels like in real life. So that, uh, Victoria, helped you because you knew that spin was coming and you were ready for that lesson and uh, and it wasn't thrust upon you like in my case where the guy scared the heck out of me. Now I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to go do stalls again. You know, that's a great way to teach someone a lesson, just sneak up on them like that, but you lose the trust of your student, especially mm-hmm. if you scare them enough, I feel like. I feel like it would have been a great lesson for me, something I'd always remember. But, um, yeah, there's a little bit of trust issues after that. Right, yeah. And that, that actually happened to me. It's like I didn't know what he was going to do next. And, uh, you know, we, we really have to build trust uh, with our, our students. And if you lose trust, you're not going to be able to have a teaching environment. And uh, that's I had to move on to a different instructor. Even though the guy was a real good pilot, had to move on from that. It's not a game, you know. Flying is a lot of fun, but it is your life if you screw up. So something like that, you know, you don't want to get scared. No, no. It's not a good thing. No. And, you know, and we train in all different environments and, and different stalls and different attitudes and things like that. And, um, you know, one of the, there's a couple things we can't train for, and that's uh, specifically stalls like on takeoff. And uh, I know, Larry, you had a comment on that. Yeah, um, I think this is one area that we don't get enough training in. Um, when uh, I started my flying career as a glider pilot, as most of you know, and so part of the pre-flight checklist for the glider was, you know, when the rope breaks below 200 feet, I'm going to land more or less straight ahead. And when the rope breaks above 200 feet, I'm able to make a turn back into the wind, back to the field. Um, and the expectation was the rope is going to break on this flight. Now, a lot of times it turned out that that didn't happen. Great, right? Um, but I think uh, there have been a number of accidents that I've seen in recent press where there's uh, a, an engine failure on takeoff. So you're on takeoff, you're trimmed for a nose-high attitude for climb, um, and people don't realize how fast that airspeed will bleed off and how fast your energy will dissipate in a nose-high attitude if you lose power. And I think the way that we're trained for a power-on stall is great, but the recovery is done with full power generally. And I think if you, again, go up to altitude, pick some, some altitude as if it were your ground, you know, just like you're doing a power on stall. But then um, during your takeoff and climb out phase, just pull the power on somebody. You know, it, do it with their knowing that it's going to happen, right? We're not trying to scare anybody here. But um, just to see how, how quickly and how, how forcefully you have to push that yoke or that stick forward just to be able to maintain a flying airspeed and not stall. And, you know, that brings up a good point, Larry. How about uh, doing it in a more realistic environment? Uh, I wonder what everybody thinks about possibly doing stalls in, in sims. I know that in our last episode we talked a little bit about that, and there's some concern as to whether the sim actually reacts properly in a in a full stall, et cetera. But 
I, I think the major point here is that we actually will be able to see it and react to it and get that experience in an environment that we will never be able to see, uh, similar to you know fires and, and losing engines on takeoff like they do training with the airlines. Um, I actually, I'm a big proponent of using sims, especially for full stalls, especially close to the ground. You know, have an engine failure at 200 feet and, and, and fly it all the way in. Um, so I think, Larry, you know, what is your opinion on that, on doing something like that in the sim? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, there's, there's nothing bad going to come from doing it in the sim, right? Just extra experience is always good. Um, I, I think that there's nothing that would replace, for most of us in the kinds of sims that we have access to at the local airports or whatever, um, there's nothing that's going to replace the, the feelings, the sensations of, you know, the, the loss of energy and trying to push the extra force that's required to overcome trim, which I think most sims won't simulate, um, because it's not just push forward a little bit, it's kind of slam it forward pretty fast um, and hard and hold it. Um, just to be able to maintain a flying airspeed. So I, I would be a proponent of doing it in a sim, doing it in real life, except real life being, you know, go up to, you know, three, four, five thousand feet AGL um, and call that ground level and work from there. Interesting. I, you know, I wonder from the other flight instructors here, do you do, you do stalls in, in the sim and, and show them? Because, you know, they have become a little more sophisticated. Like, you know, Tom or Russ, do you actually train stalls in the sim that you have access to i have not uh, generally done a whole lot of that i've done some uh instrument work in the sim but not a whole lot of uh, work at the private level and uh it's just due to access to uh useful simulators right right and uh because i know i think tom you guys have a fairly sophisticated uh sim at your flight school do you ever use that on a in a vfr basis um not as much because um, it's it's not really valuable time that they can use towards their uh, private pilot. Um, it is a good place to to um, you you can show something like that if uh, somebody was really that um, well weaked out about it, if for lack of a better term, you know, to 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 show them just that it that it's not that violent of a maneuver, right. you know, and 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 then go out and practice it in the aircraft. Um, I know from my little desktop version that I got at home. Um, it's not real um, realistic, but it but it does work. It does show you um, those things. And I and I was doing um, you know spin training when I was getting my CFI, so um, I did it in the simulator here at home, and uh, it was was kind of odd. You know, I, I kept trying to set it up the right way, and I could get it to spin to the left, no problem. I would get in this beautiful spin and go around three spirals and, and kick the rudder over, and out I'd go. I could not get it to spin to the right. It would go into a flat spin every time. And and for whatever reason, uh, the simulator wouldn't allow me to spin it to the right. Interesting, interesting. You know, it. What's also interesting is that we're going back to in the airline world, doing more and more stalls in the simulators. Um, I don't think we'll ever go back to using the airplane. Like when I started with the with the airlines, we did a lot of things in the airplane that we would never even think of doing now because they've lost, had too many hull losses. Uh, and those are, are quite expensive. Uh, and also, obviously, loss of life, life which is important not to have. Uh, but we are moving towards, and this has been a real change over the past five years, uh, actually doing more and more uh, stalls and stalls in situations that are not as scripted. Uh, and I think that's another comment I wanted to bring to this discussion. Another topic is, you know, are we training too much uh, towards the the syllabus and to pass the check ride 
or are we training more towards the real life situations? For instance, uh, in our training at the airlines for many years, it was like, okay, we're going to do this stall, and what you're going to do is you're going to get to this point and at this airspeed, and then you're going to recover. And it was all very, very scripted. Now it's okay, pull the thrust to idle, and on the first indication of a stall, we want you to recover, uh, which is more of the commercial type of maneuver. So, um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what, what's happening there, you know, as far as, as training is concerned. You know, are we putting in more realistic stall practice of Russ? And, and then I'll have Tom comment within in your realms. Are you doing a lot more realistic type training and, and stall practice? Well, I'm trying to. <laughs> I I try to set up set up scenarios that'll uh, that'll definitely be more realistic. And like I mentioned before, trying to I don't know how coerce I guess <laughs> you know and an inadvertent stall if I can. It's kind of tricky, you know. Some some uh, some students pay pretty good attention and don't get distracted real easy. But uh, trying to do that, you know, the inadvertent stall. Plus, like you mentioned, you you don't want the stall to break. Right. When you're flying for real, right? I mean, you you want to recover as soon as you notice that the stall's happening, and so, so that's been very important to me too. Especially, uh, like you said, they've worked that into the commercial standards. I have one uh, student with an airplane that doesn't have a stall light or a stall horn or anything at all, so it's just that wasn't a requirement. And so his his uh, stall recovers are all by feel. There's no other indication, so he's getting pretty good at uh, telling when they're coming. <laughs> Right, right. You know, it's interesting because I, I used to teach deaf students, and we obviously couldn't use a horn or a light because we didn't have one, and it was the buffet and the brake that they felt. And uh, and that's actually that's a good way to learn. That's a great way to learn. Um, how about, Tom, how about you? Are, you? are you doing more realistic scenarios now with your stalls, do you think, than in the past? Indeed. And I, and I think the transition happened even while I was getting my, um, you know, going through getting my ratings. Uh, when I got my private... Um, it, it seemed like the training was more geared towards, as, as you stated, uh, um, passing a check ride. And I've noticed now that um, you know the FAA has definitely gotten more um, scenario based in their questioning for oral exams and for practical exams, and and that's the way that we're teaching as well. It's built into the scenarios of the syllabus, and and you know not just setting up for a stall, but also explaining why we're doing this. What is it? Why are we even doing this maneuver? Where is it going to happen? Where is it most likely to happen? And why do you need to recover it? Why is it important? So, um, yeah, I think those scenarios are definitely built into it and, and definitely important. And I think, too, that going back to the commercial uh, standards, I know, I think, Russ, you mentioned it there for a second, that things have changed a little bit in the past when uh, when we did our commercial as compared to now, what, what have those changes been, Russ? I mean, what, what has changed in that commercial uh, PTS? Yeah, well, now it's just the commercial standard is just for the, uh, for the applicant to recover at the first indication of a stall, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm, I'm not right. reading it in front of me, but it's, I think it's wording to that effect. And so that, that t- removes the whole, you know, the stall's going to break. And I was, well, if you feel Buffett, well, that's the first indication. <laughs> you have a, a stall horn or a light, you know, well, there you go. That's, that's, the, that's the standard recover. And, well, the pilot should be able to do that, right? I mean, should be right. paying attention to those cues, even if they're, you know, looking out the window during a maneuver or something. So, so I, th- I definitely think that's a little more realistic. The one thing, just a general comment, I, that I don't like about stall training in general is not the stalls itself, but is the whole setup for the stall. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's almost like there's more emphasis on 
getting this set up right when that's not really what we're teaching, is it? Right. I mean, what, what we're teaching is recovery. So, but but what are the what do the students get, get worried about? They're okay, oh, is this, okay, so power off, so I need to put my flaps down, my airspeed needs to be this, and my power, and, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the thing to get wrapped up around, right? It's the, uh, the recovery is what's important. Unfortunately, that's just, uh, you know, the nature of the beast, there's not really any way around it, but I, I do try to stress, like, I think you were commenting earlier, why are we doing this? You know, we're not doing this to learn how to get into a stall, we're learning, we're doing it to learn how to get out of the stall, Right. Right. So, so I, I kind of approach it from that that standpoint, and then hopefully, then the, the rest kind of clicks. And and I've noticed too, and the, and this is good. I mean, I'm feeling better now uh, since we've been conversing about the stall training because both on you know the private commercial level and the airline level, we're doing more realistic training, and we're not teaching people more towards the procedure. We're just telling people, okay, we want you to stall and recover from that stall. I'm not going to tell you you have to recover within 200 feet. Just recover from the stall. And then we'll discuss that recovery afterwards. And it really does help. It it helps you get a more realistic feel for the stall and the stall recovery. Uh, but it also makes you realize what's the most important thing. The most important thing, especially as you move on into commercial, et cetera, is don't stall the airplane and also recognize when it's going to stall. Of course, we do want to understand how to recover. So those are two separate things. But, you know, the stall, you really, as a commercial student, you need to know you need to recover right away. And I think you pointed it out, Russ, you know, that, that initial feeling of the buffet and we recover right away. Once you feel that, boom, recover. Don't let the stall break because that's what we want to do as we move on in our, you know, flying people for a living, et cetera. You know, once we hear that, uh, that airplane getting slower, you know, we use all of our cues. We want to get the airspeed uh, a little bit higher so that we, we don't stall that aircraft. Uh, I'm I'm excited about it. I I think um, I don't uh, ag- agree with a lot of the critics that state that we really shouldn't be doing full stalls in a simulator on the airline level because I I really want to have that procedural knowledge as to how to recover. So for instance. Uh, although not part of the syllabus, I had asked my instructor on my last recurrent if I could do a full stall uh, in the aircraft and see how I could recover. And it took me about 10,000 feet uh, to actually recover from a full stall in wow. a, a fully loaded jet. Uh, and that was up at altitude. Like I think I was at like 40,000 feet. Uh, and wow. finally by 30,000, I recovered. But uh, but at least, you know, we, it, it went, I went through the procedure and it, and it gave me that idea like, wow, this is going to take a long time because you have all that momentum, etc. Same thing is going to happen in a, any bigger airplane that we start to fly, whether you're going from, a, say, a 150 to a Malibu, there's a little more mass there. So things don't happen quite as quickly. So your stall recovery might take a little bit longer and you're pushing this nose down. So the recovery might take a little bit, a little while longer than it would in a lighter aircraft. So I think that's really important to get those cons concepts down. So, you know, I, I really, I feel that we should try it as many ways as possible and, and, and recognize that this could be, you know, disastrous if this happens very close to the ground. So let's try not to stall real close to the ground. Uh, it's different in a training environment when you're waiting for it because you're about to react right away because it takes a few seconds when you first stall, like, oh my gosh, what just happened? That type of thing. Um, but, but I think the most important thing is understanding what to do and when to do it, because if you look at the airline accidents, and that goes back to your primary training, you know, we've had a lot of accidents where people have stalled aircraft and pulled the nose up when they should have been pushing the nose down. 
you know, and that uh, pitch and power equals performance. So I think that's really, really important. So, uh, so that, I mean, this is a, a really good discussion about stalls and stall training, but it goes, it goes a lot towards like our loss of control accidents, a lot of them happening because we are stalling the aircraft and we're stalling the aircraft too close to the ground. Um, I will say the, the first time uh, I had a power failure in a single engine aircraft, it was about 800 feet above the ground, seven, 800 feet above the ground, and I was climbing. And, um, you know, because I guess I was flight instructing a lot, uh, one of the first things I thought of was put the nose down. But there's that startle factor that actually happened to me, which, you know, I said to myself, oh, this won't happen to me. But it did. I said, oh, my gosh, I let that airspeed drop so much or and it did it on its own and I let it happen. And I was like, oh, get the nose down. And that's where that primary training comes in is get the nose down. Look at your airspeed. Okay, airspeed is life. We're flying again. Now let's concentrate on where we're going to put this airplane down on the ground. Uh, because if you don't, if you depart control flight, uh, the rest of the flight is, is not going to go very well. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think the point that one of us made about that, about doing, uh, Larry made about uh, takeoffs and loss of thrust on takeoffs is very important to understand what's going to happen on that. You're at that nose high attitude and you're still, you're still thinking, I should be climbing. And there's a, that psychological factor, I want to go up but you need to bring the nose down and that's incredibly important to do that. And at that point you're trimmed to go up. Yep. You know, so the airplane is going to go up unless you, you know, actively take over. Yeah, and it's uh, something we should all should try practicing in a, and especially at, at altitude. So good stuff though. I I really am excited. I I tell you I'm feeling really good about this. I'm glad we're doing more and more of this stall training and uh we're going to see more of it in the future. Um, but, uh, and I'd love to hear comments from the people listening, you know, what, what they've done and what their stall, stall training has been like. Uh, that's, that's really, really important to us to find out, um, you know, what is, what is your experience and, and what you would do different. So make sure you go on the website to stuckmikeavcast.com and, and, uh, make a comment there. Um, another quick topic I wanted to discuss, um, is, uh, I think, Russ, I know you got cut off the last time as far as a story that you had, and I thought it was a very good story uh, that I'd like you to relate about a student and something they did that uh, really, you don't have to relate their name or anything, but relate the situation uh, as far as smoke in the cockpit. Yeah, the uh, it was a pretty interesting situation. I have a student who is, he's, a, he's a, in the solo phase of his flight training, and uh, he owns his aircraft, It and so he... As a result, he does you know probably a little more solo flying than you know, than a renter would. You know, it's a nice day. He, he sends me a text, "Hey, I want to go fly." Okay, go. Weather looks good. Well, it was a Saturday morning, and I got a, a text from him. I knew he had been out flying. I got a text saying, "Hey, I uh, don't think we're going to be flying tomorrow." <laughs> so, uh, it turned out to be a little bit of an understatement. He said he saw some smoke in the cockpit, and then landed at a nearby airport. So. He had taken off from his home airport and uh, gone to another airport to do some practice landings where he was appropriately signed off for, of course, and he'd been too many times. Well, so I asked, well, what, you know, what happened? He gave me the short version, and, uh, well, I live pretty close to that airport, so I drove on out and had a look. Um, and his story was he was doing touch and goes, uh, and on one of the takeoffs, he, he felt a little bit of a uh, reduction in power kind of when he was turning crosswind. Uh, smelled a little bit of smoke in the cockpit, saw some smoke, and and so of course he doesn't. You know, he's got a real emergency situation. He doesn't know what's going on here. He immediately turned everything electrical off because you know he didn't know what the source of it was. 
Uh, and then he, <laughs> then he said he, he had two thoughts. Uh, one, I wonder if I can make it back to my home airport, which is about nine miles away. Like, I'm sure we've all had that thought. You know, something goes wrong. Like, oh, man, maybe I can make it back. But then he said about uh, a quarter of a second later, he said, no, no, that'd be, that'd be silly. Russ would uh, never let me live that one down. <laughs> so, uh, so he forgot about that idea. And then the other thought was, well, he was just on crossing. Maybe he should maybe come around and make a landing with a tailwind. But he said, nah, that probably wouldn't be real good either. Had about a 15-knot tailwind. So, so what he did is he took it around the pattern uh, and made a real short approach and, uh, and landed, taxied off the runway. Well, when I got there, we opened up the cowling, and it was obvious that the that both sides of his exhaust had had broken free, had detached, um, you know, just through vibration and, and age, I assume. And uh, I mean, the the shroud around the exhaust was was broken and, and cracked up, and and the muffler, was, mm. everything was just was just destroyed. Um, so as a result, they had had, he had had hot exhaust going around in the engine compartment, and some of the electrical wiring was melted. Uh, that was probably the smoke he had, and I mean even the the brake fluid reservoir, you know, boiled over. And it was just just a lot of stuff going on inside that uh, engine compartment. Uh, so of course he he told me he had been running through his head. Did he do everything right? Did he do everything right? What could he have done better? And I'm thinking, man. You're a solo student pilot. You had, you know, you had practice, almost an onboard fire, and you put the plane down and, and safely and, and got out, and everything's okay. I think you did great. So, um, so we kind of looked back at some of the uh, symptoms, and it was interesting in, in hindsight how a couple things that had happened were really trying to tip us off to this. Okay, so uh, on a previous flight, I think one previous flight to this one, him and I had been in the airplane and we had heard, you know, I turned on the fresh air vent cause it was warm. We heard a little bit of rattling sound and well, you figure it's the vent cause I closed the vent and the rattling stopped. So I figure it was at the vent flap or something. That was probably part of the exhaust kind of rattling around, you know, inside the, the shroud or something that we couldn't see on a pre-flight, I imagine. And then he said that on his, um, when he was doing his run up for this takeoff on, you know, the incident flight, I suppose, his uh, when he tested the car, Pete, the uh, the RPM dropped a lot more than normal, but he wasn't sure what to attribute that to. You know, it was a colder day than normal. I mean, we'd been flying all summer, and this was the first cold day, maybe something like that. But really, what it was was this: the exhaust shroud was so broken up that the hot exhaust was going right straight down on the carburetor. So uh, yeah, the carburetor heat was really, really hot. <laughs> so. Um, oh. Yeah, so so those are you know, a couple of signs. We also had actually the the flight right before the one where he had the incident. We were supposed to go up flying for a night flight, but we had to cancel due to um, some of his nav lights not working. And well, I'm really glad they didn't work because that would have happened probably on that flight. So um, so that was pretty pretty fortunate. But uh, yeah, he he. I think he did a great job, and I, and I told him that. But uh, I certainly hate to see his repair bill. I know he's, he has to put a new exhaust system on and uh, repair a lot of the wiring. And unfortunately, the airplane's stuck at a, a, another airport that's not his home. So, uh, but yeah, I, he kept his he kept his cool. He uh, resorted to his training. He he executed a short approach, put it down. I mean, this guy's going to have uh, really great material for when the uh, examiner starts asking him about emergency procedures on his check ride. I think <laughs> that's for <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> so, uh, wow, I've got a story. Yeah. I think he did a really great job, and there's a lot to be learned from uh, from what what happened there. Yeah, and also learn and and review it and figure out what you might do different, uh, and uh, what 
you might do better possibly in the future. I think that's oh, a good yeah. idea. Oh, yeah. It's given it's give me training material for, for years, I'm sure. Oh, this. gosh, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. And, uh, Victoria, you've had something like this happen, haven't you? We've had that happen. Um, one of my first few dates with Bob heading down to Sun and Flun, actually, the uh, exhaust one one pipe broke off and we're like, wow, what is that noise? It sounds so strange. And sure enough, we landed at um, Sun and Fun with part of the exhaust was off inside the cowling. And it was just rattling around there. Um, We didn't get any smoke in the cockpit, no fire, um, anything like that, like this gentleman did. Uh, But we got it welded back on and fixed, flew away, flew up for a couple more hours, couple more flights. And one day we were headed to um, go camping in New Hampshire and the other side broke off and we ended up having to didn't know what the weird sound was and make an emergency landing um, at an airport that was luckily just below us. And uh, he needed to put in a whole new exhaust. So if you ever have an issue with your exhaust pipe, part of it breaking off, it's going to break again. Might as well fix the whole thing uh-huh. in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I, I told my student that uh, he absolutely made the right decision to land there and not cons- you know, fly nine miles back because with all that hot exhaust, he very well could have had a real fire in that time, you know, on, you know, real fire. So so good moves. Good moves on, yeah, everybody's part there. And as a matter of fact, it brings up a good point. You know, it's, it's important for us to look back at these situations, you know, the ones we share and also, you know, the, the ones that we've actually had happen to us. Um, you know, we had an interesting comment on a previous episode 108 when we were discussing the Cirrus aircraft and pulling the parachute and uh, pulling the chute on the on the aircraft, I should say. And, um, you know, I think the comment was that uh, they didn't want us second-guessing what the pilot was, was doing, et cetera. And there's, uh, you know, I won't read the whole comment, but um, I think it's really important for us to do this. I think what we're doing here is very valuable and, and bringing forth uh, the discussion of that actual incident or accident so we all can learn and also what we can learn from that. And it's always great because we do this at the airlines all the time. We always discuss the situation and we say, okay, what would you have done? And uh, do you think this would have been a better approach, et cetera? Because no matter what, uh, everything, there is no perfect emergency. You know, you're going to do something that is going to be possibly wrong. And uh, it might be minor, but the most important thing is to get the aircraft on the ground safely and uh, and walk away from it. And I think that's that's super important. So I think, you know, it, it's it's really important for us to have these discussions and uh, and we're definitely going to continue to do that. Uh but you know, I'd love to hear feedback uh from the listeners and we we got a few uh things as far as as feedback on that one. So uh, definitely really appreciate that. So go to stuckmikeavcast.com and, and uh, go to the contact page uh, if you want to comment on any of this discussion. Our picks of the week. You know, guys, uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, this has been a, a terrific discussion. Some great points have been brought forward uh, and just an awesome episode. But we need to get to our next section, and that is the picks of the week. Uh, so the first person I'd like to start off with who has a really cool uh, pick of the week is actually Tom Frick. Tom, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, I was looking around, and I thought of something that, uh, you know, as I was an aspiring av geek, I thought I'd pick on something that, uh, well, it's the 60th year that my pick is uh, happening. And uh, basically what happened back in 1955 was um, uh, a Sears store out in Colorado placed an advertisement that uh, you could call and talk to Santa. And um, they printed the wrong phone number. The phone number that they printed ended up being the Colorado Springs Continental Air Defense Command. 
And the colonel that was on duty that night said, hey, to his whole entire staff, he says, every kid that calls, just go ahead and give them the current location of Santa Claus. And that tradition actually carried on when two years later it turned into the North American Aerospace Defense Command, which is known as NORAD. And you all know what I'm talking about at this point. Uh, you know, I'm talking about, you know, NORAD's uh, Santa tracker every year. So uh, my pick of the week is um, for uh, NORADtracker.com. And uh, every Christmas Eve, you can uh, go out and list, uh, look at uh, where Santa Claus is. Um, I used to do that with my kids when they were little. It was awesome. We'd go outside. We'd actually look at, be looking for airplanes at night. And I'd point them out, and they'd eventually see a... Uh, maybe a red nav light and we're sure it was Rudolph and it's, well, you better get in bed. Yeah. And it was Rudolph, right? It was, yeah. it was indeed. I think it's really cool. All these different trackers. So that's an awesome one for, for the Christmas season coming up. Uh, and uh, I think that's really, really important to, to track Santa because uh, we want to make sure that he makes it over to, to our rooftop and drops off some gifts for us. So thanks for that one, Tom. I really appreciate that. Very apropos for the season. Um, you know, we talked about the uh, Affordable Aircraft Expo coming up, and I think Larry has a, a really cool pick of the week. Yeah, um, I would just uh, offer the bydanjohnson.com uh, website. Uh, Dan Johnson, for those of you who don't know him, I believe is uh, is he president of the Affordable Aircraft um, uh, uh, Organization or, or whatever. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly his affiliation, but he is probably the most knowledgeable person in the industry uh, and he has an amazing website that has information on uh, aircraft and picking the right aircraft for you and a ton of information and videos uh, all about light sport aircraft. So uh, check out bydanjohnson.com. 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 He's a great right. guy. Very, uh, very awesome video. I mean, they, they're uh, he's very knowledgeable on topics and he has some great, great videos. So I, I think that if you're thinking of a light sport, you go there. Uh, he's he, or anything affordable. Yeah, he's really got some amazing videos out there on YouTube. So thanks for that, Larry. Appreciate that. Uh, Russ, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, my pick of the week is actually a series of two books. Uh, uh, authored by Rick Durden, who some uh, will know his name. Uh, he's been an author around aviation for a while, writes for avweb.com. And he has two books out. Uh, they're The Thinking Pilot's Flight Manual, and it's volume one and two. And I've kind of started reading through through this. I've actually finished the first book, and I'm working on the second one. And, and they're just really interesting books about stuff that isn't covered in flight training. It's more like stuff you, you usually kind of learn on your own after the fact. And you know, after you're done, I mean, stuff like, well, what do you do when you take your first passenger for a ride and you know, how to keep them comfortable? And uh, what about, you know, how to improve your chances if you have to land somewhere? Yeah, we do a lot of practice landings in the middle of nowhere, but, you know, what types of things should you look for? How can you kind of improve your, uh, reduce your chances of injury and such? Uh, you know, what, what about scud running? What constitutes that? And, you know, how to, how to avoid getting trapped? And uh, even stuff like, well, you're, you're flying along and you, run into some bad weather, we always think, well, I'm going to divert to the nearest airport. Well, what if there is no nearest airport? You know? <laughs> How about a precautionary landing somewhere, somewhere in a field? I mean, on purpose, what do you do for that? And then and myths and such that, uh, that uh, keep getting propagated uh, through, uh, you, know, through you know, old wives' tales and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, just a real interesting couple of books, and I'm really enjoying reading them, and it's a lot of, uh, a lot of good information that we usually don't think about them. Uh, you know, maybe a Christmas present or something for somebody. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a great pick and uh, love his books and, and the information he has. So that, that was really good. Thanks, Russ. Appreciate that one. Um, the next one is, uh, you know, again, we're all talking Christmas. So uh, remember, I'm a 2X uh, before I'm losing weight, but I'm still a 2X. And I think Victoria has a really cool uh, pick of the week. Just saying. Go ahead, Victoria. <laughs> um, this one, I, I don't even know how I stumbled across it, but um, it's an Etsy store and it's called Map Shirts. So it's Etsy.com slash shop slash Map Shirts. And it's pretty much shirts that have map prints on them, but they're actually legit maps from different areas. Some are vintage, some are more modern. And right now he does have um, two or three sectional chart map shirts out and they also do custom orders so um would be really neat to have your own um hometown map shirt that sounds pretty cool i you know especially like when your ipad fails you can just pull up your shirt and look at your shirt and find out where you are exactly. yeah it's great for check ride sure <laughs> i guess that's cheating on your check ride isn't it no no all available sources of information <laughs> ah, very, go. good, very good very good <laughs> Oh gosh, you know my mine actually my pick of the week because uh, uh, I know Rick has a really cool one, so I'll, I'll just put mine in there real quick. I'm I'm a big fan of uh, loss of control lately. We're doing a lot of FA safety seminars about this in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, there's uh, some news uh, about uh, flying safe and preventing loss of control accidents, and discusses loss of control and also uh, discusses it uh, more towards the multi-engine uh, pilots out there and those that are. Uh, looking at uh, making sure they don't lose control in a twin and discusses VMC. And I thought it was a really cool discussion about, um, you know, that loss of control and that article. So it's actually, it's a link to an article about it's fly safe, prevent loss of control accidents. And I'll have that on the stuckmikeavcast.com. Really, really good article about loss of control uh, there. So Rick, what is your pick of the week? Well, it's not that, not in particular, particularly very cool, but just in reference to something, a piece of technology I use if you are an editor of audio and and are working on podcasts like this one, the last uh, episode we put out, 109, was edited on my phone, which was kind of a fun test to to uh, figure out and, and to do. And it it's, uh, was using a bit of uh, software from uh, it's an iOS app called um, Ferrite Recording Studio. It looks a little like Ferret, but it's not. It's Ferrite Recording Studio. And it's, um, it's a pretty cool piece of audio uh, editing technology that works very well, uh, especially on a larger screen device. Um, iPad's preferable, but, but the larger phones, it, it works very well. And uh, if you want to go back and hear what it sounds like, listen to episode 109. And, and the coolest thing about, them, it, about this is it's from a uh, company called Wooji Juice. I don't know why it's called Wooji Juice, but I like that someone dares to call their company. So, yeah, the, 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 the URL is W-O-O-J-I-Juice.com. Wooji Juice. I love that name. Yeah. Yep. It sounds like something from, from Star Wars or something. Or yeah. Some, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Wooji Juice. Well, that's cool. Thanks. And, and it sounded really good, and uh, you did a great yeah. job on that. It was fun. Uh, fun to test it out. Um, did, did you do it lying down on the couch kind of thing? Uh, no, but I, did, I, I did squeeze in editing moments in, in the middle of my life, you know, like walking around. That's waiting cool. for something, and I had it in the phone, and I could just mess with it whenever I wanted, which that part of it was helpful. Um, you can't record with it. I mean, you can, but you can't record a multi-path uh, Skype session with it because it, the OS won't let you record uh, and, and do Skype simultaneously. So there's a limitation to what you can do 
at the recording bit. But once you have it recorded, you can do pretty much everything. A, a little bit of that uh, the geekiness is coming out of Rick here. He's, he's very much the tech geek and, and, and well, the aviation geek. You know, uh, like I like to push the edges when I'm not in a stall. <laughs> Oh wow, Vic! I think we should just leave it at that. And, yeah, there's uh, very there's very little danger of, of pushing the edges on that, you know. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> the after landing checklist. Well, Rick, I appreciate it. And uh, oh, by the way, I you know this is the episode before Christmas, and ah, we'll, yes. Uh, so uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, I'm not going to sing "It's Christmas Time" in the cockpit, but uh, <laughs> we 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 will we will see everybody next episode. We love bringing these episodes towards you, and we hope that you learn something from it. And uh, I know from from Rick and and Larry and Russ and Victoria and uh, and Tom and uh, and Eric and and everybody else that we have on as a co-host from time to time. Uh, we really, you know, we appreciate you, and and we really wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday, and we hope that you have a safe holiday, and you get everything you want from Santa Claus and uh, from your loved ones, and just uh, in this holiday season, you know, go out there and try to find something for yourself this year. That's that's one of my things. Is I'm going to go out, I'm going to buy something aviation related for my own personal Christmas gifts. I'm going to wrap it and put it under the tree from me to me and uh, uh, that that's something I, I would really you know encourage you to do too do something fun in with your aviation this year you know check out something that that you know would excite you it might just be going to the airport and checking out a new restaurant but uh, do something you know this year that uh, you normally wouldn't do for yourself uh, and just stretch it have fun with it and we'll talk to you next episode you've been listening to the stuck Mike abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.